Right, hello everyone, it's Dermot. Welcome back to Rupture Radio's At The Roots series. Since April 28th, Colombia has witnessed one of the largest popular mobilizations in the country's history. The massive protests began as a national strike, which was called by workers, students, trade unions, left-wing parties, social movements, peasant groups, indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities against the US-backed government of far-right president Ivan Duque. The movement has faced fierce repression, but has already achieved significant gains and shows no signs of stopping. This week, I was joined by Colombian activist Lala Penaranda to discuss ongoing developments in Colombia, the nature of the movement and how things might play out in the coming weeks. I'll change over to that interview now. All right, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Lala Penaranda. Thank you for joining me to talk about the recent strikes and protests in Colombia. Thank you for having me. So Colombia is now into a month of national strikes, with the movement showing no sign of faltering. Just as a start, could you give an outline of how a regressive tax reform caused this series of events and how it has unfolded in the past number of weeks? Yeah, so the tax reform was a tipping point. Um, It was an insult on top of an injury. And the injury, um, I guess, starts with colonialism and carries on into uh, what is a neoliberal, capitalist, right-wing, governed country. Um, I think it's it's important to understand the protests and this particular strike wave that, as you say, has been going on for a month um, within the region. So Colombia was influenced both in the 2019 strike wave, in the 2020 uh, anti-police uprisings, and now in the 2021 um, strike wave by occurrences in the region from Haiti to Ecuador to Chile, etc. And it's not a surprise um, that in Latin America, the richest 10% owns 71% of the wealth and pays just over 5.4% of the income tax. So this question of, of a tax reform um, in Colombia, where the richest 1% owns slightly more and pays um, even less was was just this this symbolic um, and material insult. So it's been it's drawn five million Colombians, um, which is about ten percent of the population, to the streets. And even though the list of grievances is long, um, and you know covers everything from protests against neoliberal policies to uh, environmental devastation and police brutality and killings of social leaders. It is, it is true that the, um, that the tax reform was the calling point by the National Strike Committee, El Comité Paro Nacional, on April 28th. And the bill that to, just to get into the actual concrete details of the bill um, that was proposed by Duque, it essentially attempted to shore up the finances of the country uh, in response to the pandemic-induced fiscal crisis. So Colombia is in its probably its worst um, uh, economic moment in terms of debt accumulated, and of course it's anti-worker because workers always pay pay these. Um, these situations. So 
I think many understood it as a kind of nod to investors, you know, an attempt uh, to provide solvency to the um, public finances, which again are in crisis, while at the same time regaining the confidence of foreign investors, um, while the Colombian population is at 10% unemployment, uh, 50% of its workforce is in the informal economy. Um, the response of COVID has been a disaster, as in most countries. Um, and I guess the centerpiece of the of the bill, um, which has since been retreated due to protests. Um, so again, protests work. Um, the original centerpiece was to increase taxes on wages and consumption and um, the sort of top, top, top of the Colombian oligarchy was largely exempt. And it also, I think this is really important and it ties into the, the issue of police violence and state terrorism. It maintained the military budget, um, even in a time of uh, debt crisis, in a time of a global pandemic. And that is important because it signals to everybody that the that confrontation and contestation of the neoliberal model is going to be met with state repression. So like we keep this military budget for that purpose. Colombia is for the most part no longer in uh, an internal armed conflict. There are still some active guerrilla groups like the LN, but um, we are supposedly in a post peace agreement country um, on paper, not in practice. And so again, the, these budgeting priorities of the right-wing administration of Duque um, that maybe was uh, encompassed and, and symbolized and concentrated in the form of this tax reform is what has sparked these protests, which again have brought 10% of the population to the streets. So just from research, I had seen that the movement itself comprises trade unions along with peasant, indigenous and other like established social organizations. Just to give listeners a sense of the political actors, what are the political foundations of the movement and its leadership? What sectors of Colombian society have mobilized in, in that 10% of society that you mentioned? It's interesting because there's this sort of official strike committee, El Comité Paro Nacional, and that is composed of the leading trade unions and some national movements. And it's a, it's a body that coalesced around the 2019 national strike wave and which has since been pushing forward these demands um, against neoliberal reforms, a sort of a plethora of them. <laughs> and it also, so in 2019, in addition to the demands to repeal some of the austerity bills, um, even back then in 2019, it also included longstanding historic demands of, for example, yes, the implementation of the peace agreement, but also land reform, which is the originating um, element of the armed conflict in the first place, um, and then tax reform and uh, a bunch of a bunch of other demands. Um, including investigation into, into state crimes and the intellectual authors, of which many of whom are senators today. Mm -hmm. 
including Álvaro Uribe. So there were many demands and um, that Comité Paro Nacional is the one that convoked the April 28th strike. It was seen as a moment of, okay, it's been over a year of lockdown, of a disastrous COVID management, and we're going to use these particular bills. Um, there was also a health reform bill that has since also due to protests been repealed. Um, but we're going to use these reforms to uh, to mobilize the population. And it was it was supposed to be a small protest, maybe a one or two or three day mobilization. And it was scheduled uh, near May Day so that it would continue sort of across the weekend into May Day and maybe one or two more days. But the immediate response of the state violence, um, not even necessarily the, the large turnout, it was a large turnout, but nothing of historic proportions necessarily, that is what led to uh, a sort of explosive mass mobilization across the country. And it was Cali, the third largest city in Colombia, that was the, the center of that resistance. And that's not a coincidence, and maybe we can go into that later. When talking about the official strike committee and the trade union bodies, um, it's, I guess, important to always remember that Colombia is the most dangerous uh, country in the world to be a trade unionist with over 3,000 trade unions having been murdered since 1989, um, which is more than the rest of the world combined, at least by official tallies. Um, and 87% of those cases of trade union murders uh, result in impunity. And there's been lots of different attempts, either through the Truth Commission or um, other processes to to locate some of the disappeared trade unionists, um, and that has been through the search unit for the disappeared, but there's been over 8,000 victims of, of forced disappearance in the country, and many of those are trade unionists or campesinos. Um, and it the, the main trade unionists, uh, CUT, CTC, CGT, they are the umbrella or the worker centrals for about 2,000 registered unions. And I guess the CUT is the largest with over 600,000 members. Um, but that's those are sort of the official mobilizations. What has led to the actual uprising have been uh, youth from the barrios, from the marginalized urban peripheries. And uh, it's, I think, again, not a coincidence that that is where the police violence has concentrated, um, especially in the... Um, for example, in Siloe, in Cali, which is a working class uh, neighborhood, Cali is a majority Afro-Colombian city. And it's a lot of the very loose neighborhood associations, which can be art groups, they can be um, sort of youth-led community, um, either music or uh, self-employment or... Mm support groups, those have been the backbone of this uprising. Um, and then there's been other formations such as the mothers. There's a lot of photos that have been circulating of mothers being the first ones on the front line um, there to protect the, the teenagers and you know the very young uh, otherwise frontline protesters. Um, so as Madres de Suacha have long been a kind of symbol of resistance in Colombia. And then there's the victims organizations that are mostly in the countryside, but that in this case have come out to uh, support and be in solidarity with 
this state repression happening in the cities. Um, and they're maybe the ones that have the most infrastructure of investigation, of human rights networks, of independent media. Um, and I think, yeah, I think those are sort of maybe the main formations. There, there, aren't, there are some national grassroots movements in mm -hmm. Colombia, like Marcha Patriotica, Congreso de los Pueblos, um, but el proceso comunidades negras. But I think actually it's the sort of decentralized, um, again, mostly urban periphery uh, associations, organizations that have uh, been the fuel to this uprising. I think much of the coverage over the last week that I've seen has covered the fierce repression from the right wing government uh, led by Ivan Duque. What is the nature of the establishment forces in Colombia and also of the repression? You had mentioned that it is more intense in some of the periphery regions, but throughout the country, what is the, the sense of it? When we're talking about division of powers in the Colombian establishment, I think there's been um, a good analysis of, let's say, the left forces and the left parties. But I think it's really useful to think about the divisions within the um, within the right wing, which is most of mm. the establishment, because that's been Colombia's legacy for for many decades. And I think we're starting to see mm, manifestations of those divisions come up uh, even just recently. Um, so, for example, this week, Colombia has been having hearings both in the um, Cámara de Representantes and in the Senate, so across the Congress, uh, to mm, to impeach, to vote on whether to impeach the defense minister or not. Right. And there's so there's been different parties coming up and having and participating in these debates, both in the Senate and in the House. And it's been interesting to see, for example, some members of the Centro Democrático, which is the far right party. It's the party that Ivan Duque comes from. It's the party that uh, Uribe founded. And to, to say, I am going to be a conscientious objector in this vote. I'm going to vote against the interests of my party. And I'm going to vote in favor of the impeachment of the defense minister. Those are indicators of fault lines mm. um, in the right wing party. And when we talk about the Colombian right wing, um, we're mostly talking about, on the one hand, El Centro Democrático and the Conservative Party. And those two have been longstanding allies. And then we have Cambio Radical, uh, which is a smaller party that was previously aligned with the Santos administration and which increasingly has moved towards uh, the far right wing. So we have, when you look at the breakdown of the Congress, you have a really strong block and it's a unified block with some internal debates, but that votes together along, you know, political, uh, along the party line, essentially, um, on militarization, on uh, their approach to the peace agreement, on how to address um, what they continue to call terrorism um, and other issues. So we have the far right wing forces uh, embodied by those parties. And then we have sort of center right, which was characterized or is now characterized mostly by Santistas or followers of the previous president, Juan Manuel Santos, who um, won the Peace Prize, despite having been, um, for example, the defense minister under Uribe, where over 6,400 extrajudicial killings happened. So Juan Manuel Santos was the overseer of that. And yet 
here he is being the embodiment of a center right. Um, he oversaw the peace agreements and had what was a sort of very public rupture with Uribe. Um, and so those are two of the forces. And I think it's maybe exaggerated to say that there's a division um, within the army of those who don't want war or don't want to continue operating within an eternal enemy, um, I guess, context, and that subscribe to Santos's policies, and those who do want war and are pro-Uribe. I think it's it's exaggerated to say that that division exists within the army, and yet we continue to run into examples. For example, Truth Commission lawyers who uh, request documents for their investigations towards the Truth Commission, and we'll find that middle-ranking Santos-affiliated uh, or Santos-sympathizing middle, again, middle-rank uh, military personnel will favor giving them certain documents, giving over certain documents, um, and then you'll have the sort of far-right-wing Uribe um, uh, now high-ranking officials saying, no, we overruled those orders. We are going to archive these. These are ours. And so even though we're seeing some small fissures and some small fault lines regarding what the role of state and the armed forces should be in response to social protest in what is one of the most unequal countries in the world and definitely in the region, there is still an operational and sort of a, um, a unity in practice. And a lot of that just comes from the history of Colombia, the history of an armed conflict in which the right wing responded um, with states of exception in the 70s, 80s and into the 90s. Colombia lived under a state of exception more uh, frequently than it did under a constitutional uh, state. It was the sort of go-to to create these extraordinary powers for the president, for the military, um, to overrule basic rights, basic liberties of the population to protest against the conditions that they were living in. Um, and again, that also contributed to the, the massacring of, um, of trade unionists, especially when, it, when this uh, sustained war culture uh, created the parallelism that we see um, in the early 2000s uh, product of, of Uribe. And unlike many other countries in Latin America, the police forces, and this goes back to this particular moment, this particular conjunction, the police forces form part of the Ministry of Defense. Um, so it is the army and the police together in the Ministry of Defense. And then you have the, um, the, the justice system that is military, the um, justicia penal militar, um, which is the one that rules over and investigates crimes against humanity, uh, corruption, mm. uh, state violence, etc. And so when we as Colombians are demanding investigations into these cases of uh, overstepping, more than overstepping of crimes against humanity, um, Really, we need to take even a few more steps back and start demanding uh, the desmonte del esman, so the, de the demobilization or the eradication of the riot police on the one hand, but also um, a sort of structural 
uh, change in how these state crimes are investigated, mm -hmm. beginning with, and this is a, a, um, a demand that has started to gain more popularity, beginning with removing the police from the Ministry of Defense, um, so that also we can have actual independent investigations. And the CIDH, the Inter-American Human Rights Court, has been denied entry into Colombia to investigate crimes. So what we're seeing is a is a pretty public meltdown of mm. the Colombian establishment of the public um, forces. The military has stayed mostly out of public eyes criticisms. Um, but again, these these actors are they are different, but they operate under um under the defense minister, who is now, as I mentioned, facing these calls for impeachment. So just in a struggle like this, there is always an attempt by the establishment to portray the movement in one way. And obviously that gets picked up both internally and internationally. What has been your view of the portrayal of the movement, both inside Colombia and out? Yeah, that's a great question. I think often there's this rhetoric, a really dangerous rhetoric of we support social protest but not with, you know, whatever it is, fill in the gap, uh, rock throwing, burning precincts, burning public transport stations, et cetera, um, or commercial food chains or banks, ATMs, et cetera. So there's this like conditional of we support people protesting. That's great. But and that but is just so dangerous because it is exactly what the media, what politicians, what allows the justification of this state violence. So, and it's and it's um, sort of masqueraded or whitewashed with uh, these very ambiguous terms. So in Colombia, the term is vandalo. And we've had really high-ranking politicians and members of the Policia Nacional saying, we are going to use unconditional force or unrestrained force uh, against vandalos. And when we go to dissect the definition of what constitutes as vandalo activity, it's throwing a rock, it's it's blocking a street, it's blocking the paramilitary. And that is, of course, not an act of war. And so there's this equating between a vandal and a terrorist. And we know that it is not the same to yeah, burn yes. a bus and to block um, a street than it is to, for example, put you know, a car bomb in which 100 civilians are killed or the, the kind of rhetoric that would justify these states of exceptions, these toque queas. Um, and so it's, I think, because of Colombia's history, um, it's become extremely normalized in public opinion to say protesta si, vandalismo no. Um, and that's, I think, in our rhetoric, in our defense of social protest, we have to be sort of unconditional in the appropriate um, identifying and scaling yeah. of violence. So again, when 40% of the Colombian population is in is now in poverty due to a, a, whatever our economy, but also a terrible COVID management, we understand that that is, as, as Marxists, as socialists, we understand that that is a greater structural violence yeah. than anything that can be done to property because property is not nearly, is not life, right? And so um, when we're, for example, requesting statements or anything, it, it shouldn't not only, of course, um, 
prohibit this use of uh, we support um, peaceful protests or whatever it is. We shouldn't um, just omit that. We should explicitly uh, say that this is the fight of the Colombian people for their day to day dignity and rights. Um, and I think that is that is something that has to be amplified again, property over life, basic vandals are not terrorists, etc. So you kind of touched on there that this is a flashpoint in the Colombian people's frustration with the difficulties inflicted on them by the system, but that it is part of a long history of struggle in the country and in the region that has ebbed and flowed in the past and then is obviously back at a high point now. So how do you make sense of this process in relation to past uprisings and what are we facing now in the coming weeks? Where does it look like things are, are heading at this stage? So I think there's been already some material victories and political victories that the protests have generated, right? On the one hand, we've seen the finance minister resign, the vice finance minister resign, the tax reform has been withdrawn, and the health reform has been withdrawn. And now we're seeing pressures for the defense minister to be impeached. So these are political victories any way you look at them. In terms of what is going to happen next year are Colombian elections. So I think there's a lot of attention on how the hell to get the right wing out of power Mm. while not uh, propping up a center or even a center left that is going to continue to perpetuate the root causes of social, economic, political violence in Colombia. and. We're seeing also a um, a call to action um, by these grassroots, neighborhood-based, um, but also regional urban organizations. So not based in Bogota, but based in Medellin, in Cali, in Ibagué, in Cúcuta, in Pasto, etc. Um, that also count on that are, are also calling on an accountability uh, for the left. So. I maybe should have mentioned this in, in my previous question about El Comité Para Nacional, but there is some tension between the negotiation that is happening with the official committee um, of the strike and all these neighborhood-based committees that are making their own demands from below that are, uh, for example, having both national demands, but also regional demands. Um, and a lot of those regional demands are based on um, some are based on police reform, others are based on police abolition. But there's a real recognition that if you are young and working class, um, and especially if you are part of the indigenous, campesino, or black communities in Colombia, the state does not give a damn about you. And so there is a kind of mm-hmm. self. Um, uh, I mean, literally self-empowerment in the sense of confrontations with the state on the streets in their neighborhoods um, saying, we have nothing to lose. We don't care how long this takes. Um, this is our neighborhood to defend. This is uh, our our life and our future to defend. And so there's concrete calls uh, regarding, for example, the abolishment of student debt, um, the investment away from military budget. Into, into education, into youth employment. Um, for example, very concrete demands have been coming out of Cali uh, mm. uh, saying, you know, there should be 
stipends for, for public school students in our in working class neighborhoods um, and uh, apprentice positions that count towards uh, labor experience so that we can actually get jobs. And those jobs should come from uh, programs that are related to the implementation of the peace agreement, which is holistic, right? It's got six points, everything from uh, land reform to guarantees of um, political participation and sort of um, citizenship, uh, I guess, involvement in politics um, to eradication of coca via substitution of alternative crops. So there's a I mean, it's it's kind of like a Green New Deal scenario in the sense that if the peace agreement were to be fully implemented, it would be not only a massive uh, employment creator, but it would be employment towards um, other sectors that would then uh, be maybe more self-sustaining, especially in um, in the agricultural sector, in las regiones outside of Bogotá, outside of Cundinamarca. Um, and... We've just seen the rise of some politicians, like locally elected council women, council men, that um, that have come from left processes, and that I think are now being upheld as, um, you know, as 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 uh, people who are in positions of power, but that are uh, accountable to social movements and vice versa. So one person that I would really encourage looking into, for example, is Haiti Sanchez, um, who, you know, came sort of through, well, just has a very militant background and today is representing Colombia Humana and Unión Patriotica, which are two large left parties um, in the, in the council of city council of Bogota. And I think that this, even if it's on a sort of small scale government, these examples of young people that sort of come from the neighborhoods that are uh, now um, being the ones to confront uh, police directly, mm. um, I think are, are sort of examples of, of also a different kind of politics. Um, and then, you know, I think Chile has been a huge example to, to Latin America of how to transition from a uh, large-scale social uprising. I mean, Colombia is nowhere near the proportions of Chile, but mm -hmm. to um, sort of sustained uh, self-organization and to uh, ultimately a constituyente, which I, I don't think Colombia is in the conditions to do at the moment. Um, but yeah, I would say those, <laughs> I mean, and again, sort of the, the investigations. Um, and then there's also calls from uh, for Colombians in the exterior, and especially in the United States, uh, to pressure the Biden administration to cut um, funding to the Colombian uh, Fuerzas Públicas, so combination of, of police and, uh, uh, but especially army. Um, and I mean, at this point, we've seen, I think it's something that the number keeps changing, but I think it's 53 or 54 um, murders in, in the framework of this strike and um, many cases of disappearance, disappeared people. There's been over 1300 cases of arbitrary detentions um, and those numbers just keep increasing. And one component that has been particularly um, disturbing has been the uh, the cases of of sexual violence by the riot police in 
uh, unauthorized, completely illegal detention centers, sometimes the basements of um, of these police stations, other times in public transport stations that they've taken over. Um, but I think that has also, I mean, the feminist movement from day one has been part of these strikes, but uh, there's, you know, it's too long a history of sexual violence in Colombia to not make those historic ties and to say no mas. What I think is crucial to mention in all of this is the environmental angle in which the accumulation and extraction model in Colombia has been tilted towards dispossession and displacement of thousands of people from agricultural and indigenous backgrounds from their land. Uh, My understanding is that this takes place against the backdrop of establishment forces guaranteeing oil companies and the landowning class secure access to land. And this always seems to be um, the first port of call for reactionary movements in South America to target the indigenous movement and target um, like at the, the agricultural forces. Um, what, what's the nature of this and, and what, how is the conflict played out in this area? Colombia is an extremely resource rich country with a very militant indigenous movement, environmental movement, farmers movement and black communities movement. All of those are rooted in defense of the land against development models that have Uh, for decades, centuries, been um, the source and the motor of dispossession and concentration and ultimately accumulation. And it's been through this inflated military body that has been justified by an internal enemy discourse and rhetoric and um, state of exception uh, that that the state has, um, has exercised this a completely over-militarized uh, response to uprisings in defense of land. So since 2016 and the, the signing of the peace agreement, there's been over 1,000 social leaders killed. Um, and most of those social leaders are land defenders from either indigenous communities or black communities. And I think this is an indicator of what the right wing conceives to be sort of the treatment and the uh, the appropriate response to defense of the land on the one hand. But I think, and this is really important to, um, to understand, I think, in, in terms of the political readings of the center, I think from the beginning, the Santos administration, again, Santos being this Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, mm-hmm. conceived of peace as the grounds on which to build foreign investment for, for mining primarily, and its economy was rethought around what we called la locomotora minero energetica. So this industrialization and again, hyper-focus on mining, on oil. And I think that's one of the tasks of, of the left to build an economy, rebuild an economy that is, is democratic both in its uh, reparations um, mm. to victims, its land distribution, uh, its land reform, and um, it's decentralization in that these these communities can um, have greater sovereignty over the land that they've defended with tooth and nail with their lives. And Petro, Gustavo Petro of Colombia Humana has probably been the best candidate to talk about energy transition. And he's done maybe the best of any politician, at least that I know of in Latin America, in including trade unions in energy transition demands. 
Um, so this is sort of the, the realm of, of work that, that I do. I work with trade unions um, mm. in energy transition demands. And in Colombia, the largest unions, sort of the oil sector workers, the coal sector workers, um, the central uh, the electricity workers, all sort of have a pretty developed demand or platform uh, for energy transition. And I think that it's the product of um, a long process of engagement and political education of, yeah, the trade union rank and file, but also the social movements, the environmental movements on the ground in these um, in these towns that have been sort of hyper exploited for a long time, just based on the one resource or two resources mm -hmm. that they provide to this locomotora minero energetica. And so there are these demands of we fueled the country for all these decades. Now we are going to be on the front line of this transition. These are our demands. Uh, social movements, environmental movements, sit down with trade unions, right over the course of, I mean, this is not like one conference or one summit. It's over the course of years that these town halls happen. Um, to develop platforms that are then uh, sort of voted on in the trade union uh, national centers and then presented sort of in left coalitions to Congress. And Petro received the largest vote in Colombian history for a left candidate. So I think that these are all really hopeful indicators of where environmental uh, struggles have um, have have been very, very militant and very structured in, in amplifying their demands. And then there's uh, one presidential candidate for the 22 elections, 2022 elections, uh, Francia Marquez, whose background, uh, she's a very powerful Afro-Colombian leader, mm -hmm. and her background is against the mining extractivism in Chocó, in Valle del Cauca. And so I think she she's also someone to definitely look out for. Yeah, and I will leave links to um, anything mentioned in this conversation in the episode description. Just lastly, is there anything that people in Ireland or internationally can contribute to in order to support the movement or the strike efforts? Thanks for that question. I think it's sort of the the reason for for organizing, right? So people on the streets of Colombia have been putting their body on the line and the demands for action are not just national, but international. And so one thing is to continue the trade union solidarity to um, make statements, resolutions to divest from pensions and other um, institutions that continue to benefit off of militarization in Colombia. And then I think at least speaking from someone doing Colombia solidarity activism in the United States, what we've seen is a sort of U.S. bilateral foreign assistance program of about nearly $400 million, a part of a larger package of government support to Colombia, Colombia being one of the largest country recipients of U.S. military and non-military assistance. And Something important is to locate the parliamentarians, the um, even local politicians that mm. are uh, willing to speak out, willing to um, organize delegations, willing to call on um, or pressure investigations into these crimes against humanity, these war crimes, these, this state terrorism. Um, so the political 
pressure and sort of the international allies on Colombia is extremely useful. In fact, as soon as international delegations arrived to Cali, uh, the police changed their behavior. It was almost nice. day and night. So that, that's one thing. And then I think having sort of people-to-people delegations. So, for example, here, um, there's an effort to have a Black Lives Matter delegation to Cali to build solidarity ties with the Afro-Colombian communities and resistance there. And the same can be done for environmental groups, for feminist groups, for anti-war groups. I think those kinds of face-to-face delegations are important, even, even in the context of COVID. This is at least one of the requests that has been coming. And then I think just generally amplifying the voices of, of Colombians. The coverage up to this stage has been phenomenal in terms of capturing the movement or repression. And I have seen people sending out messages of solidarity internationally. So I think it is very encouraging. And the struggle in Colombia is just as encouraging um, in terms of uh, people facing a, a situation that they think is in, unmanageable and with a government bearing down on them. So it is a, a very inspiring. So thanks a million for joining me, Lala, to discuss of course, thanks so much. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time. You wake up and your head's fucked. You stick your trousers on and your last bit of makeup. You